Episode number 87, Kevin Strauss, Applying Storytelling to Environmental Science. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. Hey, welcome to the Art of Storytelling with Children. I am so grateful that you have made it here with us today, that you have made mm, the love, the love of the earth, the love of all things green, the love of, well, the love of sharing those things through storytelling important to you, and that you have come here to share with us today the love of science. Now, I, I, I know that, that you came here to talk about storytelling, but but storytelling through science. My friend, my good friend, Dr. Kaboom, who plays a um, mad scientist on stage, he likes to say, the love of blowing things up. <laughs> Which is really what science is about, or so he claims. Storytelling is inherent in science, and it is mixed throughout science. I took a, a course in college, which was the history of science. And, and I want you to know something that you may not have noticed before. The word history has the word story in it. So basically, I took a class in the story of science. And I'm, I'm really excited today to get Kevin Strauss here because Kevin has spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff and about how you can bring science more effectively into your classroom or into your school. Hi, right, Kevin. Thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Kevin is an award-winning author and has been using stories to entertain, educate, and inspire children and adults for more than a decade. Based in Rochester, Minnesota, Kevin travels around the Midwest to perform at schools, libraries, and preschools and community events. Kevin is the author of three books, including Tales with Tales, Storytelling the Wonders of the Natural World, winner of the prestigious National 2008 Storytelling World Award. His other books include the full-color children's book, Loon and Moon, and The Song of the Wolf. He's also a storytelling star on two CDs and two upcoming DVDs. The CDs include The Mountain Wolf Gift and You Tell a Tale. Kevin, thanks for so much again for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. I, I love having other environmental storytellers on because I start off as a storyteller in camp settings, working with the famous Keepers of the Earth Storytelling Collection. In fact, that was probably my entire my repertoire for a long time. So, Kevin, you got a story you could share with us? Sure, sure. This is a story that comes from Lithuania. Now, a long time ago, when only animals walked on the earth, Owl woke up one day and knew something was wrong. Owl looked around and saw that the leaves weren't fluttering. Owl looked around and saw that the clouds weren't moving. And Owl looked around and, even though Owl couldn't smell very well, knew the air was stale. Owl flew around and began talking to the other animals, and they all had the same feeling. Something was wrong. And as the animals gathered in a clearing to discuss the problem, they realized what it was. Wind was missing. You see, wind would always travel hither and yon all around the world, 
getting the clouds to move and the rain to come, and clearing out the air, but for some reason that wasn't happening anymore. Owl looked around at all the animals and said, Who, who, who's going to go find the wind? Who, who, who's going to search? And the animals, they all looked at each other. Of course, it was extra work. Who wants extra work? But as the animals looked at each other, they realized someone had to do the job. That is when Mouse had an idea. Um, uh, what can we pay him? Uh, we should be some, some, some reward. If we get a reward, maybe we'll try. And the animals thought about that for a moment. Now, Vulture, who was one of the greediest of the creatures, looked around and said, I always have to eat dead things. I wish I could have the first bite of any food around. I would go look if you give me the first bite. And the animals agreed they would all like to have the first bite of any food they could find. And so they agreed that would be the gift. Whoever was able to find and bring the wind back, they'd get the first bite of any food in the world. So the animals all took off, the birds flying into the air, the bugs crawling under the ground and across the surface, the walking animals running back and forth. And among those walking animals, there was Spider. Now, Spider knew that she wasn't the fastest, and she wasn't the biggest, and she wasn't the strongest. But as she was walking along, she thought, where's no one searching right now? And even though there were lots of animals flying in the air and searching through the woods, nobody was looking out to sea. And it was a calm day. Spider walked out to the edge of the ocean. And it was so calm there on the sea that Spider was able to walk right on to the surface of the water. She sunk a little bit and had to swim, but as she was swimming along, she saw an island up ahead. And she climbed onto that island and began searching around. And sure enough, there on the island she found wind snoring away. She climbed right up above wind. She hung right down on her thread, right over his nose, and began tickling his nose. And his eyes opened. Hey, what are you doing, waking me up like this? I was enjoying a nice little snooze. The spider said, you can't sleep, Wind. We need you out there. And Wind was so angry at being woken up, he flew up into the air, knocking Spider to the ground and tearing up her web. Wind flew off into the world once again. Spider smiled. I did it. I found the wind. I woke him up. Now he's going to be back in the world. And as she climbed to the edge of the island to go back and tell the animals what she had done, Fly came flying by. Fly had seen Wind go zooming past and saw Spider there. Hey, Spider, did you find the wind here on the island? Yes, I did. He was sound asleep right there on the island, said Spider. Good, said Fly, and he turned and flew off as fast as he could back to the animals. Spider had to walk and swim her way across the sea back to the shore where the animals were, and by the time she got there, Fly had already told everyone that he had found the wind. Fly had already been given the first bite. And that's why to this day, if you try to eat food anywhere outside, you'll notice... Fly comes to visit and tries to eat the first thing that you are going to be eating. And Spider didn't like that. She was so angry when she heard that Fly had lied and said that he had found the wind, that she vowed from that day to this, if she could catch a fly, she would eat a fly. And that's why to this day, spiders make webs, and when the wind comes by, wind sometimes tears them up. And that's the end of the story. So when you tell that story in a school setting, do you explain it? Explain it? uh, I explain it. Partly. Um, When I do programs at schools, I talk about two ways of knowing about the natural world. Whenever you talk about anything in the natural world, there's a story reason and there's a science reason. And they're both really important to know because if you just know the story reason, 
well, then it's a little difficult to understand cause and effect. But if you just know the science reason, you might not be interested enough in the topic to learn it. And so I really encourage kids to know both those things. Um, the, the story reason gets you to care about the natural world, and the science reason helps you understand the cause and effect that makes things happen. So what would be an example of both in this story? Okay. Um, the... The science reason, or the the story reason about uh, the relationship between spider and fly is ecological. That, that flies are predators, and they catch. I'm oh, sorry, spiders are predators, and they catch flies uh, in their webs, and so they help uh, control the fly population to some extent, and they're part of the food chain. The story reason, of course, explains that that fly did a bad thing, lied about. Um, who had found the wind, and, and because of that lie, now has has spiders always trying to catch them and eat them for dinner, which is a, a good social lesson about not lying, but it also gives them a story reason. Kids may not right away think about food chains and remember food chains, but I guarantee they'll remember a story about fly. And then, since they have that story in their brain, they can then link that story to the science reason. It makes it a lot easier to recall those science facts. So are you talking about this during your presentation? Yeah, usually between the stories. I'll, I'll, depending on the age of the students I'm working with, if I'm working with upper elementary students, I'll tell the story, and then I'll say, well, in the story you heard a story reason why spiders catch and eat flies for dinner. Does anyone know a science reason for that? And upper elementary kids usually have heard of food chains, they have some idea what's going on, and so then we talk about that for a little while. Um, for younger kids, I might have a poster or or props that... that or a spider and a fly that demonstrate the food chain a little bit for kids so they get some sense of the biology between spiders and flies. This is Fran Stallings. You're listening to The Art of Storytelling for Children with Brother Wolf. Check out my interview on environmental storytelling, telling hope to inspire action. I mean, any story can have a story reason and a science reason in it. I mean... Is there a definition of an environmental story as opposed to just a story? Sure, sure. When I think about what makes a story an environmental story, when I began looking at this issue about 12 years ago, I realized there wasn't a, a real clear definition of what's an environmental story. Back then, you mentioned the Keepers of the Earth series, and that's a great series of books. A lot of naturalists, a whole generation of naturalists, learned their first stories from those books, and, and they were very good books. Um, but there wasn't quite a definition of what made a story environmental or not. If it wasn't in one of those books, it wasn't clear. And so I began thinking about it in terms of what the story does for the teller and for the listeners, and I decided that an environmental story is a story that either teaches something about the natural world, something about a plant or animal or a rock, or teaches an environmental education concept. And those are things like... Um, adaptations or habitat or uh, the laws of ecology, um, like everything goes somewhere, um, everything's connected, there's no such thing as a free lunch, those sorts of concepts. And so when I looked at the stories that I tell, I tried to figure out what one of those are teaching some kind of nature concept. And in the case of Who Woke the Wind, it's teaching a food chain lesson, in effect, between uh, spiders and flies. And it also can be teaching a lesson about... Um, how all parts of nature are really important. Because sometimes people say, well, you know, we don't need mosquitoes because they bother us. Or we don't, it'd be great if the wind stopped blowing because it's always, you know, ruffling the things in our yard. Uh, but then looking back at it, you realize you really need all those elements of nature. There's a reason why they all interact. In my mind, that as long as the story is doing something to teach about nature or teach an environmental education concept, that's what makes it an, an environmental story. And uh, 
not all Native American stories are environmental. A lot of times that used to be the, the fallback definition. Well, if it's a Native American story, then it must be environmental because that's a group of people that had a, a special relationship with the natural world. And it's true that many tribes did, but not all their stories really fit the definition of teaching environmental ed because they were told historically long before we even had a concept of environmental education the way we do now. And, and some of them were designed to teach very important cultural values that weren't necessarily environmental values. Um, they had other meanings in their culture. And so when I look at stories, some of my environmental stories actually don't have any animals in them. They all have people in them. But the concept, they're teaching an environmental concept at the same time. Yeah, why would you create a story about something that is self-evident? You know, if you're, if you're dependent on a natural resource, if you're living in the outdoors, there are things that are very obvious to you that urbanites don't even realize as principles. Right, exactly. So when you talk about storytelling, what's the difference then between just a storyteller coming to a school and an environmental storyteller? Uh, with an environmental storyteller, that, that's kind of a small subgroup of, of storytellers in the world, and they tend to be people that have environmental education or natural science backgrounds. So they have a science background to begin with, and then they use stories as a doorway to get students thinking about nature in a new way. Because for better or worse, um, the way that, that we tend to talk about science as a very logical, mathematical sort of system is great. We need to be able to use the, the science measurement pieces to help understand our world. But the, the sort of left brain, logical part of our brain is not the part that gets us to care about something. Uh, just recently, in a lot of research that's been done about environmental education, they've discovered that teaching kids science about nature is really good and really important but it doesn't really have much of an impact on whether they're willing to turn off the lights to conserve energy or whether they're willing to recycle, because those are all issues that you have to care about the natural world and our resources to make a change in your life. And, and teaching science doesn't do that. It works a different part of the brain. The part of the brain that you activate to get them, get people to change their behavior and take care of the natural world is, is the right side of the brain, the emotional side. Stories do that. They, they activate that caring part. And even if, uh, historically, when people lived in a rural environment, they spent time on farms, they interacted with the natural world a lot more. They spent time at creeks and in forests and saw animals all the time, and it was easy for them to have a connection with that natural world and to care about their surroundings. Nowadays, as a more and more becoming an urban society, we're getting separated from that, and kids don't see animals very often, and it's hard for kids to care about the natural world if they don't experience it. And stories give a doorway for them to start building a relationship with the natural world um, through stories, and then eventually, hopefully, that'll lead them to, to having their own outdoor experiences. But when kids hear a story about an animal, that gets them more interested in those animals maybe they've never seen before, or maybe they've only seen at a zoo. And those stories give them that, open that door that gets them interested. I have a particular passion about the way structure of, of a physical space creates a certain um, set of ideas in the people who live there. If you live in a place where there are fences between you and the swamp, then you view a swamp as a negative thing because it only supplies mosquitoes as far as you experience it. But if there isn't a fence there and your children come back holding frogs, um, it changes your view of the swamp. Let's talk about what makes a good environmental sure, story. Sure, sure. Um, when I'm picking environmental stories, the I, I learned early on working at a nature center. At first I thought, well... I, need, I have a deer class coming up. I need a story that has a deer in it. So I'd go to the library, I'd flip through a couple of books, and I'd find a story that had deer in the title. And I'd read it real fast and try to go and tell it. 
And I realized real quick that didn't work because with any kind of storytelling, you have to really love the stories that you're telling. And if you're just sort of going through the motions of telling a story, it doesn't work for your audience. They, they figure it out pretty quick and they start to feel bored. And so the first thing for any good environmental story is it's got to be a story that you love. Um, that there's something in that story that you like so much you can't help but want to share it with people. Um, but that's true for any story. Any story should be one that you love. You shouldn't try to tell a story that you don't love to begin with. Um, after that, uh, what makes a good environmental story is one that explains something in nature in a surprising but appropriate way. A lot of the, the why stories, How Bear Lost His Tail or Where Deer Got Her Antlers or His Antlers, um, those sorts of stories give us a, an entertaining and, and um, surprising story explanation for things in the natural world. And then, at the same time, it's not a, it's not a science answer because it's a whole different language with stories, but it makes sense in a story world. And it's entertaining, and it gets you thinking about adaptations like Antlers or Tales. gives you some explanation that makes sense, but is surprising the same way. Because if it's, it's too obvious, then you'll get bored getting to the end of the story. Um, and also, a good environmental story is a good lead-in to talking about the science of animals and plants. And so when I'm uh, reworking stories, since a lot of stories were never meant to be environmental stories, I often take a story and rework it to make it more environmental. Um, I'll try to make sure I'm adding details that maybe weren't in the original story, whether it's biological facts about the animal or something about how the animal sees or smells things, so that it's real easy for me to go from the story to then talk about the science later on. And uh, and so adding just a few science details and making sure I'm getting the science right in the story makes it easy to take that step from the story world to the science world. I mean, how do you find these things? <laughs> There are a couple of good resources out there, and it, it took a lot of searching. The Keepers of the Earth series is a good place to start for books. Uh, I've, my book, Tales with Tales, I was trying to solve a problem that I saw with environmental storytelling in that I knew lots of naturalists that didn't know anything about storytelling, and I knew lots of storytellers who knew nothing about nature. And so when I created my Tales with Tales book, I thought I'll create a book that, that teaches both groups what they don't know. And so, since there are a lot of books out there that already include Native American environmental stories, I, I set myself the challenge of creating a book with stories that come from other parts of the world. Because I, I was a little concerned that if, if we have the common belief that only Native American stories are environmental stories, then that gives people an easy out. They can say, well, you know, the, those Native American tribes, they cared about nature, and look what happened to them culturally. Their life changed when we came here. It's hard for you to say that if they're also European stories and African stories and Asian stories and they all have environmental themes to them, that it's not just one group of people who cared about the environment, that, that everybody did. Uh, and so so one, one set of stories uh, are, are books that are out there. There is a website called environmentalstorytelling.com that has a synopsis of a bunch of very short versions of environmental stories. Also, just looking through collections. Usually, I'll, I'll go through the collections from all different countries and um, and look for animal stories in there. And generally speaking, the best animal stories that you can find in books nowadays are from cultures that either were never Christianized or were Christianized by the Catholic Church later in history. So places like Lithuania, Finland, Sweden have a lot better animal stories than Germany or France or Italy. Historically, when... Uh, all different cultures told animal stories, but when the Catholic Church moved in, it saw it as, as its job to get rid of pagan folk tales about animals, and so a lot of those stories disappeared, or they're left in tiny little pieces, different places. A lot of African folk tales and Asian folk tales um, still keep some really good animal stories in there. Sometimes, though, I'll, I'll 
find a story from another country that'll be a great animal story. And it teaches a concept that I want to teach. It teaches about an animal that's really interesting to me. But because it's from a different part of the world, the animal doesn't work anymore. It it's, has a hippo in it or an elephant or that sort of thing. And I sort of looked around at the storytelling world and I thought, okay, well, historically, how have storytellers dealt with this? And it, it wasn't hard to find exactly how they did because you see stories from West Africa that, that came over to the New World and became Br'er Rabbit stories. And you notice that in Br'er Rabbit stories, you don't see any elephants or hippos in those stories. They, the storytellers that came from West Africa used the animals right here in North America. And I thought, if that's already been done, it makes a lot of sense to do it again. And so sometimes I'll, I'll take a story that is a story that works really well and adapt the animals to a new home, which storytellers have done for thousands of years already. And that way I find a story that works really well and I really enjoy, and then I adapt it for the animals that live in this area. And you have a lot of experience with different animals. Lots of ecological sort of thought has gone into what material would work best with, you know, how how it could be changed. Right, that's true. When, when I'm, uh, whether I'm creating a new story, if I don't find a story that I like, or adapting a story from another place, I... Um, in looking at, at mythology and folklore throughout history, there's usually some sort of backstory to the whole thing. So if you look at Greek mythology, for instance, you have to know that there are gods like Zeus and heroes, and you have to sort of know that backstory for those stories to make sense. The backstory that I think of and work from, in, in a lot of ways, is um, an ecology-based backstory. And so I want any story that I adapt or create to to fit the pattern of ecological systems that we have here in North America and, and ecological topics we're going to talk about. Uh, and I try to choose animals. If I'm adapting a story, I, I adapted a story from Ghana, West Africa, and, and it was a story about turtle. And turtle was going to play a trick on elephant and hippo, and it was a tug-of-war story, a little different from the one people are really familiar with, but where turtle challenges bigger animals to a tug-of-war and then ties the end of turtle's rope to a rock under the water. And elephant pulls and pulls, and finally the rope breaks, and, and turtle wins the tug-of-war contest. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm bringing it to this country, we don't have elephants, we don't have hippos. And since a lot of stories historically have been told from where you're standing, they, it's only recently in the last hundred years that we've gotten real common telling stories from other countries. Usually you tell stories about your own place. Um, and so I thought, okay, if I want to bring the story over to this country, I need parallel animals. And I thought, okay, an elephant. Well, an elephant's a really big animal. It spends a fair amount of time walking around on land. What do we have that's a big animal in Minnesota that walks around on land? Well, our, our biggest animal here is a moose. And I thought, okay, that, that's a good parallel. Large animal, eats vegetables, walks on land. And then for the hippo, we don't... Then I'd find a parallel animal for a hippo. And I thought around and thought around and thought, well, you know, I'm having trouble finding a water animal. And then I looked at the, the characters again, and I thought, well, you know, our second biggest land animal around here is a bear. So let's have the bear be the land animal. That'll be the elephant character. And we'll make the moose the hippo animal, because moose do spend a chunk of their time eating green plants and water. And so I, I tried to have parallel animals in the story. And then turtles, we have turtles in both places, so that wasn't a big problem to match up. In environmental storytelling, as we already discussed, um, the Native American strain is very strong. Um, I've had a couple different Native Americans on the show already, and as I've said before on the show, I was I worked with a man named Medicine Story, who's a Native American elder of the Wabanoag Nation, who kind of goes he's on he's in the strand tell the stories you know now strand, um, and I've also worked with storytellers who were 
who are very much more constrained in how they work with native uh, tales. And that's actually my practice, is to be sort of restrained in how I tell them. Um, and I was really curious how you handle that in your practice. Sure. How do you use native stories? The short answer is that I don't anymore. Uh, when I was learning stories, I used a lot of stories from Keepers of the Earth. And, and those are, are good stories if you like them. But I, I realized as time went on and I learned more about storytelling and learned that there was a debate about uh, the use of Native American cultural stories. And there are people on, on all sides of that de- debate to this day. And it will probably be an ongoing, very healthy discussion. And I began thinking about, for me, are these stories that I love enough and I'm interested in enough to do what I think is important to treat the stories well. Um, and I thought that um, for me it would be really important to learn about the Native culture that told the story and, and the history of the story and do a lot of background information. So I'd feel that I'm, I'm a, a good person to be telling that story with an audience. And I sort of looked around at the stories that I was telling that happened to come from Native American sources and I thought, well, they were okay stories, but I didn't love them enough to work really hard to to tell them. Uh, I thought there could be other people that might do a better job. And I began looking around for other sources. And I began finding stories that worked better for me, made an an easier leap from the story to teaching about the science of that story. And so since I found stories that I liked even better, uh, and I adapted stories, and, and once I adapted or created new stories, then I could really control a lot more of the message of the story it was a lot easier for me to do my work as an environmental educator using storytelling. With Native American stories... So you're, you're saying that with Native stories, you felt like you had a responsibility to stay true to the original text, the original story, but with materials out of, created out of folktales around the world, you felt like they were more flexible to your needs. Right, exactly. In part because of, of the ways that different cultures look at their stories. There are some cultures, including you know European cultures, that animal stories are primarily for fun, um, or maybe to teach a social lesson about lying or cheating or something like that. There, there isn't a large religious component to a lot of of European animal stories, and and that's true for for many other places around the world too, except for um, many Native American tribes. Animal stories have some strong religious elements to them, and and I decided I didn't want to just like I don't want to be teaching kids religion at a school when I'm trying to teach them science, I didn't want to be uh, using stories that had strong religious overtones in, in teaching that environmental science. And sometimes the a few of the messages got in the way. Um, there was one story that I, I read that came from a Kwakiutl tribe, and it talked about um, animal colors. And it, it went into detail about uh, the animals wore their hair in a certain way, and that was important for this particular tradition. And And this process happened because of the culture. And all those details were great, and in that cultural context were very important. But I didn't really want to be teaching people about the, the hairstyles of Kwakiutl warriors from 200 years ago. That wasn't part of my mission. I just wanted to teach the, the story and the science piece of it about animals and animal colors. And so I thought, okay, that, that, the lesson that story is teaching about how animals got their colors from a certain process was really interesting to me. But that story didn't work. And so that's when I began looking for other stories about animal colors, and there are lots of them around the world. And then in the end, ended up creating uh, an original story that did that same thing for me. I'm really struck by this idea of flexibility with a story. That, um, and, I, and I guess I, too, have, have gone through this process because I had learned all these native stories in terms of the, Keeper, the Keepers of the Earth series. And I have actually spoken with Joseph Bouchak about this issue, uh, though not in a recording session. 
And the idea being that the stories, the native stories, to a certain amount, are given for a certain use, you know, and and also they're given with the understanding that they'll be used as such, uh, taken whole, and not sliced and diced. And when I came to actually creating the stories, I started realizing that I wasn't qualified. I wasn't Native American. I couldn't create a Native American story like the ones I was telling, and I felt really limited. I went back to my own roots in terms of being able to create original material. And so this idea of of being ecologically educated so that you can tell ecological stories is kind of in the background. Right, here. exactly. It's mm-hmm. kind of the thing driving you, you know, that you have this right, education. Right, exactly. And, and that, it helps me when I'm working on material to know what I'm aiming for. And that makes it really easy. If you know what sort of lesson or idea you're trying to get across to your listeners, whether I'm creating a story or adapting a story or finding a story, it's real easy if you know where you're headed. Stories that that are really flexible and, and can move around and, and, and adjust pieces, can you can fine-tune your message even more carefully so that um, you're making sure that the story is hitting the target and doing what you want to do. Exactly. So do environmental stories have to include animals or plants by definition? No, no. Actually, some of my favorite environmental stories don't include any of those things. Um, I, I tell a short version about a, a, a tinker and a clock, and, and the tinker has this clock that makes this really loud ticking noise, and so he figures, oh, I can fix that, and he takes off the back and takes out all the gears and begins putting the gears back together, and he's got this one extra gear, and he thinks, oh, do I really need this? And he sort of throws it away and puts the back on the clock and winds it up. He thinks, okay, the ticking's gone, that's great, and he puts it on his mantle and comes back the next day and realizes the hands didn't move on the clock. And I use a, a longer version of that story to talk about elements of an ecological system, that you need all the different parts working together, even if you're not sure what those parts do right now because we're not usually smart enough to know what all the different parts of the natural world do. And sometimes I'll, uh, in, in developing stories like that one, I'll, I'll look for quotes from famous um, environmental educators or ecologists. And Aldo Leopold had the um, phrase, the first law of intelligent tinkering is to save all the parts. And so it's a short step from talking about intelligent tinkering to talk about a tinker and a clock. And, and that story didn't quite write itself, but it was a pretty easy jump. Uh, and that's a story that involves... No animals or plants. Um, the great thing about stories is, is how they can use metaphor. A lot of times, the stories that I have that teach environmental education concepts don't have animals in them at all, because I want to show human beings making choices and what happens to them when they make a certain choice. And then that's a pretty quick jump for for listeners to he- think about, okay, in this story, characters made this bad choice about resources or recycling or taking care of the natural world, and look what happened to them. How does that relate to what I'm doing? So what about times when it may not be acceptable to talk about the environment and you want to tell stories? <laughs> sure, there's there's a new topic floating around in, in the environmental storytelling atmosphere right now called stealth ecotelling. And it's the idea that a lot of stories teach environmental concepts and environmental values. And you don't necessarily have to tell a story that, that is clearly an environmental or a nature story to still get some of those ideas across. A lot of great folktales throughout history have talked about things like greed and and those sorts of issues. And usually when we look at environmental problems, um, you, either laziness or greed are somewhere locked up in them. And so by doing stories about community values, like being generous and being thrifty, which are, are values that most Americans and most people around the world can really value, 
you can teach environmental concepts without saying this is a story about nature and taking care of the world. Because we as humans don't like to be preached at a lot of times either. Sometimes sharing a story that talks about the the skills and values we need as a society to take care of the natural world um, can get across some of those same values that that will then encourage people to take care of our natural resources. For people who are desperately going, okay, yeah, that sounds all really easy, but where do I get some of these stories again? So let's just go through a couple of resources sure, th- again, and and we'll list them on the blog, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, I'll list them on the blog as well. So you can go well. to um, dot com and look up Kevin's interview on uh, science-based environmental storytelling. Uh, what's some resources? Some good web resources everyone should know about. The first one is uh, www.environmentalstorytelling.com, and that has a uh, hundred little story summaries with source material for different environmental stories organized by animal and plant and ecological concept that you can search and find just little synopsises there. And you can then expand that into a tellable story. But there's enough there you can turn it into a story. Uh, Another website, you can visit my website, which is www.naturestory.com. And there are stories there. Uh, A friend of mine who does a lot of environmental storytelling and has been really uh, championing the the eco-storytelling or the stealth-storytelling ideas is Fran Stallings, a storyteller out of Oklahoma, and she is at www.franstallings.com, F-R-A-N-S-T-A-L-L-I-N-G-S.com. In terms of book resources, the Keepers of the Earth series of books can be a good place to start if you're interested in, in Native American stories. Um, there are a couple of other resources as well. My Tales with Tales book is a great place to start. I do have two other books that have uh, animal and nature stories in them as well. Loon and Moon and other animal stories is uh, it's about a half and half book. Half of the, the stories there are original nature stories. The other half are Northwood's retellings of traditional folk tales. So instead of the three little pigs, we have the three little beavers because beavers actually do build houses and have to deal with wolves all the time. And so that's a, a little step away from some of the things we're talking about. My, my third book is Song of the Wolf and that is wolf folk tales. And some of those wolf folk tales are uh, ecological stories, and some aren't. Uh, but it's an anthology of different kinds of wolf folk tales from around the world. So in a moment, I'm going to open up the call to those people on the line to ask a question or make a comment. We've had a couple people join us, so in a moment, I'm just going to ask one more question here. Um, so Kevin, how did you get how did you get into this? <laughs> I got into this because I was uh, right out of college, working at a nature center in southwestern Vermont. And it must have been just after the first Keepers of the Earth book came out. And it turns out that Michael Kidudo uh, didn't live far from there. And he offered workshops. And so the person that ran our nature center called him up and, and had him come do a workshop for us on environmental storytelling. It wasn't called environmental storytelling there, but storytelling. And looking back, I'd always been interested in folktales and stories. I'd always read them a lot as a kid and, and seen a lot of storytellers at libraries. But this was the first time where I saw teaching environmental science and storytelling as being connected. And after the workshop, I really liked the idea of telling stories. And we had some downtime later that summer. And one of my counselors, co-counselors said, hey, why don't you tell that story that we learned? And I started telling and I got from the beginning to the middle to the end. And it was a lot of fun. And I think like a lot of things, when once I told one story, then I wanted to tell more of them. And whenever you use a certain part of your brain, that part, you know, starts to grow on you. And I remembered the stories I'd heard as a kid and started telling those stories. And and over time, whenever I worked at a nature center, I would try to use storytelling as an introduction or conclusion or some way to get 
my students interested in the topic. And after years of working as a naturalist who did some storytelling, decided that I really liked storytelling so much I wanted to be a storyteller who did some naturalist things. And so that's how I got to where I am now. So let's go open up the call. Hey, this is Larry. Go ahead, Larry. I, I, in this, hi. Uh, I, I don't have a question, but I'm here. Hi. Do you want to have a comment or just say, you know, you enjoy this conversation? or? Uh, yeah, thank you. I, uh, I enjoyed, uh, we came in from doing environmental uh, storytelling experiential work in the yard and uh, just made a point to come in and do this. I'm looking at the environmentalstorytelling.com site right now, even as we speak. Oh, cool enough. All right. So thank you, Kevin. Oh, you're welcome. And Eric. Sure. So star six, your line for me. And Elizabeth, you have a question or a comment? Go ahead. Hi, thank you. I, I particularly, um, your your comments about how children, well, we all are disconnected from well, not we all, but many of us are disconnected living in an urban environment with with the natural environment. And I, I see that particularly also in the stories that I'm learning to tell, which are the sky stories, because we can't see the sky anymore. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's hard to convince these kids that there's constellation stories and battles ha- happening up there and all kinds of things because of that disconnection. So that's a comment. Um, one of the things I'd like to ask you regarding when you're perhaps in a position to promote your craft to someone who's who's very uh left brained that you that that what you do you know coming into the school or or whatever environment you're going to be teaching in um is really valuable. I found that as I work with perhaps a lot of astrophysicists who who it took a while to to get them to really you know remember and resonate with um with these stories how do you convince somebody uh in a, in a conversation that hey this is really a good thing for your for your classroom or whatever <laughs> That's an excellent question. Um, in in all of the arts, convincing people that any sort of art form is valuable is always a challenge. And um, there are a couple things that I do when I'm talking with schools. One is to talk about terms like inspiration. That um, students, you, you have goals in your school that students learn science at a certain level. And, and how's that going for you? And if it's going great, you know maybe you're all set. But if if there are concepts or ideas that your students are struggling with, or if um, they, they need some inspiration, or the, the topics and the way they're being approached, um, you know, just aren't resonating with some audiences, and, and some of them don't. You know, the the easiest students to do environmental education with are those that you know spend their time playing outside all the time, because they're already comfortable out there. They already have some basic background. Um, for kids that spend their whole day indoors and they get outside for an environmental education experience, it's like going to another planet. And and so um, sometimes I can um, convince schools that this is a good warm-up for your outdoor experience later on because I'm giving your students some context and um, also giving them some idea of... Uh, a lot of times when people think about how people remember things, they often use the metaphor of the filing cabinet. 
and that uh, your brain is like a giant filing cabinet, and then you have these little folders of information, the math folder and the science folder and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of times, kids have never developed the, the natural science and the outdoors folder in their brain. They just haven't had the experiences. And I can begin giving them some of that context for it so that if they um, hear a story about why bugs live in the water, and then the next day the teacher's going to take them out to a stream and they're going to catch bugs and talk about the science of the stream, I've already warmed them up for that experience because they've heard an interesting, entertaining story about why bugs all live in the water now when they're young and they come out when they're an adult. And that makes the groundwork, sort of sort of furrows the ground to get ready for those those seeds of learning to be planted. And so that's usually the, the debate that I, or the discussion that I have. I also, um, as much as I can, try to um, go first to the people that are already committed because it takes a lot of energy to convince folks. And uh, if there is someone in the school, whether it's a, um, you know, a librarian or someone else that's already an advocate for storytelling, um, they might be an easier sell. And then once the, the teacher or the physicist sees storytelling in action, they're usually on board. But the problem is um, so few of us have ever seen storytelling happen and, and seen really effective, high-powered storytelling happen. We don't often believe people when they say that storytelling is a good thing for them. Um, sometimes we've been in situations where the only storyteller we've seen is someone that maybe is brand new and really excited about storytelling, but not experienced enough to give people the, the full experience of a well-told story. And, um, and so having that experience, having, um, you know, physicists ha telling them some stories and then giving them an example of how you'd go from the step of telling a story about, you know, the constellation Orion to, um, what science you'd teach about that constellation from the constellation story can often be a really effective motivator. Um, rather than talking about storytelling, try to give them some stories and then that often motivates them. So Elizabeth, I know you're doing some pretty cool work with your, um, with, in Washington, D.C. So just tell us a little bit about what's going on with the, I want to say Sky Conference, but go ahead. Um, well, my, I, excuse me, I, I recently put on a, a, well, last year actually, it's been almost a year, I put on a festival in Kensington, Maryland called the Storytelling Festival to introduce uh, family audiences to reintroduce them to astronomy um, and had many storytellers, um, Lynn Maroney was one, Linda Fong, etc., um, and also people in drama costume, Galileo, people under under planetariums uh, who were just regular garb, <laughs> Uh, so and dancers um, and people from NASA. So we would often have a story told, and then somebody from NASA would tell the science behind it. If the storyteller didn't know the science behind it particularly, and I, I think I would resonate with something you said. One of the challenges that uh, Kevin said he had that that some storytellers did know the story, but not the science behind it, and vice versa. Yep. And I really think it's a good time to be making that bridge. It's been a difficult uh, bridge to make here, but everybody's coming around. <laughs> uh, and um, so we've put on programs at the Space Telescope Science Institute and in schools, but also we'll be doing some uh, at the National Air and Space Museum uh, this fall and in April. And uh, so, um, but I, I don't want to I, basically, it's the International Year of Astronomy, and I'm on the Cultural Astronomy Working Group, so it's really important to me and, and people in, in, in our section of astronomy to bring back those stories to the forefront and use them, as, as Kevin said, as, as tools uh, to remember 
and to connect uh, the scientific information, even if you don't get it at that time, when you get it later, oh, that makes sense. What, I, had, I did have another question for Kevin. If Go ahead. Could. Um, Kevin, you know, the, the issue about the Native American stories, I totally understand and um, ha- had those same concerns, but when you mentioned that you created your own story, I, had, I was wondering if there's a, a potential um, um, concern there. You know, when, when storytellers tell a story that sounds like folk tale, you know, mm-hmm. uh, then other uh, storytellers then say, oh, that's a folk tale, I can craft it to be my own, you know. And uh, But when you tell a story, you might have made something up and they might t- it might sound like a folk tale, you know. Yep, oh yeah. And would you not, you know, how would you keep the your possession, you know, of that because it's really more becomes more a personal story in a way because you created it. Right, those would be original stories that sound like folk tales. Uh definitely. Um often when I'm telling a story, I will uh, at the beginning or end of the story make mention of that. Um and when I publish them in books, I've made mention of that too, you know, the cultures around the world tell stories about how animals got their color and this is one of my stories sort of thing. And that helps. Um, generally speaking, um, it, it's uh, protocol in the storytelling world that if you hear a story that you really like and you can't find a print version of it, you ask the teller, you know, what was your source for that story? And then, um, you know, then the teller has another opportunity to say, that's my original story. And uh, and it's, it's an interesting world in storytelling. Um, there are some people that write books of stories and um, are very generous and say, you know, this is a book of folktales or this is a book of original stories. You know, I wrote it because I want people to tell these stories and, you know, give protocol. You know, if you're going to tell one of my original stories, please mention that this was, you know, this was your source, was my original story. Or if this is a folktale, please mention the culture. And that's very, uh, very common um, in, in the storytelling world that, that folks do that. Um, but every once in a while you get into a world where, where people write a whole book of folktales and then want to be the only people in the world who can tell those stories, which seems a little odd to me, but occasionally people do that. There, there are rumors, and if you ask around the storytellers, you'll hear rumors here and there about, you know, so-and-so says don't tell the stories from his or her book because of yada yada. Um, but in, in my sense, stories, you know, don't really live in books. We sort of stick them in there and we store them in there, but if no one's telling them, then they're going to die out pretty quick. And so... Um, I always want to encourage people to to share stories as much as they can because that's where the stories are really alive. Have you have you had some stories that kind of I've had one that kind of followed me around for two years before I really understand I was supposed to tell it. <laughs> you know, have do you, are there any that kind of like were always in the back of your mind and you just weren't sure what to do with them or how to tell them until you know it took a long time to get to that that way in for you to really like it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, learning a story and telling a story is a lot like making a friend because uh, metaphorically stories, we, we often, being literate people, we often um, think of stories as words on a page when in reality they're not. Words are just one way to measure them and, and store them. They're, they're really pictures in your head. And um, stories grow over time too. The, the more I tell a story, the better it gets. And so... Um, so you really are making a friend with the story, and, and sometimes that, like any friendship, you know, you go through rocky times where you don't quite like the story or it isn't working for you, and then over time you, you think differently about it or grow to like it or your life changes and, and so the story seems to change. 
and that that does happen a lot and it's it seems a little um a little sort of woo on the edge you know how can a story be an organism but um metaphorically they act in weird ways it's not as an artistic experience it's not um as cut and dried as science would try to explain it just because we're we're more complicated than science can explain yeah, I was looking at some uh, beautiful paintings uh, by a uh, Chinese-American artist at the National Air and Space Museum yesterday, and some of them, they had three dates on them. So he started them one year. Ten years later, he went back. Another ten years later, he went back again. I couldn't tell from looking at it where he shifted anything, but certainly he knew that he wasn't done. <laughs> you know, I think the stories are similar in that way. We'll go back sometimes a decade later, make a shift. I have a set of of seven hours, and I'm about four and a half hours through it that I've been working on. And I started in 91. You know, the first couple stories, I've told them a couple hundred times at this point, and they've changed a lot over the years, evolved. Um, we have to go on, I'm afraid. So thanks for sharing. Do you want to just give a website for your for your festival? Is there like some old photos somewhere or ongoing updates? Oh, for me? Yeah. Um, uh, it's Well, the old festival is www.starytelling.com, and that's all one word, storytelling. If you did another one, you would put out a notice on that site. Oh, I would, but, but what's on there is everything that we did do to give you an idea of how you can mix different stories together in a festival, you know, and it may give some other people ideas. Um, using a multiple intelligence approach, to a particular subject. Um, but, yeah, I, I will need to do a new website, <laughs> a new version. Um, but also, you know, also it's good to look on the International Year of Astronomy uh, website and into the cultural astronomy sections and see there might be some things that different countries around the world are doing culturally that might be uh, attractive you know, or have stories. Uh, the UNAWE website has a lot of children's stories on it and how children are, are interpreting uh, the night sky. And that's, that's a good one. If you can um, send me an email with these links, and then I'll, I'll include them on in the p- bottom of Kevin's blog post when I get all this up. Okay, we got to go on. Thanks for sharing. When I get oh, thank you. Okay, I will. Um, okay, we got to go on. Thanks for sharing. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. You're welcome. This is Tim Tingle, and you're listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. So, Kevin, you got an offer for us, for the audience? I do, I do. Um, My offer is that if uh, you're listening, and you are a teacher in a school in Minnesota, Wisconsin, or Iowa... And you contact me um, by email or regular mail or phone, I'll send you a free copy of my Mountain Wolf's Gift Storytelling CD with wolf stories on it. Is that the first 25 people who contact you, the first 40? Oh, excellent point. Um, The first 25. All right, and please remember, if you're listening, even though it might be two years from now, currently it is the spring of '09. um, the offer may still be open. So, you know, send them an email. You never know. And any other offers? You want to tell them about your newsletter? I do have a, a newsletter on my website, www.naturestory.com, and um, it goes out about every um, two months, and it has usually a, a short nature story in it, 
and then a little bit of information about telling nature stories, whether it's a, a concept or an idea, how to use uh, stories to teach about nature. All right. And your free book offer for the first 25, someone has to email you from a school email address. Right. Correct. I have two basic offers here. Uh, the first offer is an ongoing one. It's going on for a while. If, if you live regionally in the Midwest and you're interested, I have mentioned before that I'm interested in in doing an art of mentoring here in Yellow Springs. And I... There's a couple other shows on the podcast that talk about these different subjects. Uh, Michael Cadajo came on before, and, and um, Kevin mentioned him. He was interviewed on the show. And also Fran Stallings, who Kevin also interested, was on the show. Um, so both those interviews are available right now through storytellingwithchildren.com. And then also Mark Morey was on the show, and he's available through the website as well at storytellingwithchildren.com. And I'm interested in, in having a gathering here in Yellow Springs of people who want to live in nature-based community. So if that interests you, if you want to know more about that, just send me email. It's, I, it's so few, actually, who send me email about this particular subject. So if that interests you, send me email, let me know. The other thing is um, that we're gearing up here in Yellow Springs to do a retreat for environmental storytellers. If you are someone who fits that description, if you are an environmental storyteller, again, send me email and let me know and tell me about your work and your interest in, in storytelling as an environmentalist. And also, on the website, if you go to storytellingwithchildren.com, if you go on the right-hand side, down the page, you will see you will see a list of topics. And one of the topics is Earth Storytelling. And I have nine different interviews listed which touch on the topic of Earth Storytelling. So if you enjoyed today's show and you want more material like this, Go to that link, right-hand side of storytellingchildren.com, down the page. Okay, Kevin, you got any last words for the international storytelling community? Sure, sure. Um, a lot of times people think that they have to you know, find a story that's an environmental story, to find that story out there that, that teaches your particular concept. Um, but you can also, you know, we were talking about stealth storytelling before. Um, a lot of times what I find myself doing is taking a regular old animal story, an Aesop's fable, and slotting lots of science in there. Um, you know, sliding information about how the animal walks or talks or smells. And, and so that's another way to add in those little bits of science to your storytelling and, and to teach kids things about nature because that's one of our big tools. Once kids know about nature, then they're going to care about it a little more, and stories help them do that. And I want to make – I want to bring us back to this idea that the word environment has a couple different meanings in it. It has both environment as in nature-based world, but it also is the space you're in. So environment can be an urban environment. It can be a rural environment. It can be uh, a space environment. And when I tell a story, the environment of the story is one of the aspects, the background. It is. It has an acceptable set of dangers that the audience recognizes immediately, you know, an ocean story, even, you know, I take a certain set of characters, I put them in the ocean, you know, and there's a lot of danger in the story. The audience sort of has this expectation there will be something large and fishy involved in the story. If if I'm in the jungle and I'm talking about danger and large animals and something is hunting the people, you know, the audience might think a tiger, you know, or if I'm in the forest of North America, they might think a grizzly bear. 
So environments bring, you know, in New York City, you know, it might be a mugger, whatever it is for the audience, the environment brings its history and its knowledge. And storytelling is an opportunity for us as storytellers to find out about the environment of our stories and to bring that environment with us. Because when the audience is with us, they're on the journey. They're in the place. They see what we see. But if we don't know anything about the environments we're walking through, if we don't see the secret places, if we don't see the hawk hunting the sparrow, if we don't understand the secrets of the various environments, if we don't bother to take the time to look, or, or if we can't look to read about these places then we can't bring them with us because we can't go there. It's the same issue in storytelling over and over again. You can't take an audience to an emotional place you're not comfortable being. You can't take an audience to an environment you don't know anything about. So if you are going to tell a swamp story, just find out a little bit about swamps. I bet there's one near you. I bet there's somebody who is a naturalist who would love to tell you all about swamps. It will give your storytelling an authenticity that cannot be matched, that cannot be touched upon by other tellers. So, Kevin, it was great having you on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. So, even though, even though the frogs, the tree frogs on the hill in front of my house become still and quiet whenever they hear me saying it. This is Brother Wolf, and you've been listening to The Art of Storytelling with Children. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.